Well, if you are a kiddo waiting to be dismissed, I want to dismiss you. Miss Antonia is back there waving. Uh, there are volunteers with the yellow shirts, and you can go ahead and make your exit. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 5, and so if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 5. We're going to be looking at verses 7 and 8. And um, yeah, we're continuing in our series in the book of Romans. And I just, I felt invited and challenged um, by the Lord as I was singing to just make a comment about my sermon before I jump into my sermon, because it, it would be very easy for me to hide behind my sermon. Um, and Jesus is inviting me out of hiding. There's actually a book that I'm going to quote from in my sermon, um, and the chapter that I quote from is titled, Out of Hiding. And I just, as I've been preparing this sermon, I've wondered at what God is up to. I wonder what God is doing in our church and what God wants us to hear through this passage as I preach it. Because I got to be honest with you, there's conversations, it, it just, this isn't my normal routine for preparing a sermon conversation on the side at Passage, a conversation yesterday with Kyle Worley on the phone, me reading a book next to a hotel pool in downtown Dallas, have all come together amidst a season where I'm just, I'm just raw emotionally. And I think that's coming out. And last week, maybe, maybe you heard some of that. Um, but I just wanted to make that comment and be honest with you about that. Um, because this passage has really ministered deeply uh, to my heart, and I hope it does to you. But we're in Romans 5, and we started our series in Romans in the spring. Some of you may have been around, and we, we went hard in Romans chapters 1 to 4, and what we learned was that everyone, religious and irreligious, is under the judgment of God. Everyone has to give a response to God's judgment and his wrath. And the Christian response, the response we're invited into, the testimony of God's people, is that the right response for salvation is faith in the finished work of Jesus. And when we place our faith, our trust, our life in the finished work of Jesus and declare his work is sufficient for our salvation, it's by that faith that the Christian is made right with God or the fancy theological word is justified. We are declared righteous and made right with God. And we enjoy peace. And peace is more than a feeling. It's a reconciled relationship. It's a, it's a positional change that we can sit in and rest in that we are at peace with God, not war. And what this means is we have a hope. We have a future hope for a renewed creation that is restored in heaven. And as we've gone through the book of Romans, we've tried to hold out a paradigm of sorts for thinking through what Paul is talking about. And you'll see it on the slide, uh, the Romans series, sermon series slide, God saves and God reigns. Trying to emphasize this vertical relationship, but also the horizontal, that God saves us through the finished work of Jesus but he's also reigning through the finished work of Jesus and inviting us to participate in that reign and rule. And last week we looked at verse six. Paul says, while we were still 
weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And what we found and what we talked about was that this reality that Christ died in history is what we can hang our hope on. That our hope is influenced by our experience with God, but it's anchored with this historical event in history that Christ died. The gospel doesn't hang on some mythical, ethereal, something that happened up in the heavens somewhere that we're just supposed to believe happened. No, we're, we're hanging our hope on the reality that Christ, God in the flesh, died on a cross and has been recorded in history. And what that means is, if that happened, then our hope is sure. Our hope is certain, and we can cling to that hope. In verses 7 and 8, Paul is going to go a bit further, and he's trying to distinguish God's loving sacrifice from human sacrifice, from a loving sacrifice that a person would do on someone else's behalf. And so we're going to read verses 7 to 8 together, and at the end of it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're invited to say, thanks be to God. And this is something that we do every week to confirm that God has not left us in silence, that he has spoken and given us this word for our lives, hearts, and future. So Romans 5, verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God for help. Father, we pause right here to demonstrate our dependency on you. We need you to show up. We need you to, to help our ears hear. We need you to help our minds think clearly. And we need you to soften and tenderize our hearts to receive what you have for us in this passage. And so we ask that by the authority in the name of Jesus that you would bless us with the Holy Spirit of God. That you would fill this place with an awareness of your love your majestic love for sinners like us. And we trust you to do that and expect you to do something and look and watch at how you might do it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So my wife and I were doing an overnight downtown Dallas and we were remembering and reflecting on that season of life before kids. We lived in an apartment right next to Deep Ellum uh, when we didn't have kids, but one thing we did have was a puppy. We got a little puppy, and she's so cute, we still have her, her name's Luna, but we were remembering and reflecting on all that it was involved in having a puppy. We brought her home in my 2009 Corolla, and she crawled up on Mary's shoulders as we drove home. We, put, we got a crate, and crate trained her, taught her where to go to the bathroom, where not to go to the bathroom, and we were on the third floor in an apartment complex, so it was like, I was like, oh no, I gotta go, and racing down the stairs carrying this little nine-pound dog, and it was a lot of work. We trained her how to do tricks and where to go to the bathroom, where not to go to the bathroom, all of this, and there was a dog park by our house uh, on Swiss. I don't know if you've ever been down there, but it's in a historic district where there's a lot of nonprofits, and that dog park was just such a place of belonging for us when we were newly married. It was a place where we developed a lot of friendships 
and we learned what, what does it look like to try and minister the gospel to unbelievers in our neighborhood. And it was great. But as I talk about that, everybody in here has a category for what it looks like to bring a puppy home and train a dog and have domesticate an animal, right? You may not like it. You may not want a dog. I, I recognize that. There's a lot of people in here, nah, I'd prefer not to have any animals in my house. I got plenty of stuff going on in my house. I don't need that additional responsibility, and I get it. But we still have this category for what it looks like to bring a puppy in the house, train it, uh, and integrate it into your life, add it to your task list, all that jazz. But if I decided with my wife and said, hey, it's your birthday, and I want to do something really meaningful, let's bring home a tiger full-grown tiger. And we're going to put this tiger in my 2009 Corolla, and this tiger's going to come live with us in our apartment. Like, no. It's, it's a different cat. Like, there is so much more involved in bringing a tiger into your home, domesticating a tiger. And this is post-Tiger King, right? So we get, we get that there are people out there that have domesticated tigers. We don't understand it, right? We understand, oh, they got a puppy, they think puppies are cute, they love dogs, that's great, not for me. But when someone brings a tiger home, we're like, whoa, like, we assume there's some kind of, something messed up going on there. We don't understand what's involved with bringing a tiger home. And in the passage today, Paul is making a contrast. He's contrasting the great love of God with human love, human sacrificial love. And he is trying to help us understand that God's love is categorically different than human love. It's a different ballpark. It is radically different than the love that we see in movies, in our lives, all over history. We understand the category of human love, but what Paul is trying to get us to understand is that God's love is a different category. It's altogether different. Human love evaluates. God's love initiates. Human love evaluates. A person will sacrifice themselves in love, but they'll do it for someone who's worthy of that sacrifice. And Paul addresses this in verse 7. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. The, the righteous person that he's referring to is someone who is just, who is upright, who takes care of their responsibilities, who we would look at and say, that's a that's." That's a person who's a good citizen. They pay their taxes, they love their family, and love and serve their friends. And Paul says, it's very, like, it's very unlikely that someone is going to die for that type of person. And then he gives a concession, though for a good person, one would dare even to die. And the good person he's talking about is someone who probably is righteous, but they are a benefit to others. Many commentators think Paul is referring to a benefactor. This is someone who is very wealthy or someone who is very significant to the good of society and was a benefit, a great benefit to others. 
And Paul says, it's possible that someone would be willing to die for this type of person. And the idea of self-sacrificial love, it's not foreign to Paul's audience. It's not foreign to us. We understand what it looks like for a person to give their lives for country or for a, a cause. We get what it looks like for someone to lay down their life and give their life for their family, a husband for a wife, someone for someone that is very meaningful in their life. We understand it's, there's a nobility to it. There's honor in that type of death. It doesn't happen every day, but we, we get it. We understand that type of death. We see it in our movies. Mel Gibson in Braveheart laying his life down for his cause and country. We understand it. We have a category for it. Human love is based on an evaluation. And I don't, I don't think this is always a bad thing, that our love is based on an evaluation and that, you know, in some cases goes to the nth degree in sacrificing ourselves for someone who is worthy of that sacrifice. I think it really gets to the limitation, that we're, we're creaturely, we're limited, we're, we're finite. And so what that means is we want to make our lives count. We want to give our lives to a good cause. And I, I don't know that this is always a bad thing. I mean, it can go bad. It can be warped and corrupted by sin and selfishness. But there is something beautiful in it. There's something worthy in it. When someone takes you on a date or asks you on a second date, you're evaluating. Do I want to give my life to this? Is this someone that I can give my, my life to? This is what Paul is tapping into here, is this reality of human love and human sacrificial love. And he's drawing a distinction. And he's saying God's love, it's so different. It's categorically different than human love. It's different in the way it functions and in the way it's displayed. Because God's love initiates. Jesus sacrifices himself in love on the cross, not for worthy people, but for unworthy. Jesus goes to the cross for those who are unworthy. This is a different category. We don't understand this. This is from a different world because it's divine. It's divine love. Jesus dies for the weak, for the ungodly, for sinners, and for enemies. And this is what distinguishes God's love from human love. God shows, this is what Paul says in verse 8, God shows, proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wants us to see that, that Christ goes to the cross not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He doesn't go for the worthy, he goes for the unworthy. God's love initiates, it takes action, it moves towards Sinners And the cross of Christ is an intentional, precise, initiating love. It initiates redemption. God's love is, is categorically different than human love. Human love evaluates. God's love initiates. God's love on the cross 
it initiates a new way to relate to God. It initiates this new way by showing us that God is willing to sacrifice himself for those who are unworthy. Jesus died for sinners, for you, for me, to set the terms for how we might relate to God by faith. And yet, many of you don't accept those terms. You may not want to admit it. You may not even see it. But you don't accept those terms. You reject the terms for your relationship with God set by God at the cross by the way that you treat God's love like human love. You engage God's love like it's human love. And in that way, you reject what God is offering here. And it makes sense. I mean, like, I'm not trying to beat us up here. But we want to see that there's a rejection here when we do this. There is a holding out of the gospel. And we say, hey, stop right there. You're not coming in here. And what the Bible, what Paul, what, what, what I'm trying to invite us into is we need to allow God's love that is categorically different to come into our lives, to come into our taste buds, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good, to come into our minds, to totally influence and shape the way we see everything in our world and the way we see ourselves. But it makes sense that we would do this because our lived-in experience is all human love, right? The way we love others It's based on this evaluation and some kind of determination. Is this worth, is is this person worthy of me giving up this time? Like, we're we're evaluating. It's how we receive love. It's, It's the love we see in all our movies, all the stories we tell each other. And so when we come to what God is doing in Jesus on the cross, we think in that category. And Paul is saying, you need a new category, friends. God's people have a different category for God's love. And I think this is why there's a disconnect between the head and the heart. I don't know if you've heard of this disconnect, but we talk sometimes in the church as, hey, I know God loves me, but I don't experience it. I don't feel it. When I wake up in the morning, I don't feel God's love. I feel shame. I feel guilty. I feel purposeless. And this recognizing and receiving God's love as it is and bringing it down into your life is going to change the way you wake up in the morning. It's going to change the way you view yourself. It's going to change the way that you view your responsibilities and your vocation and your life. We don't experience God's love because we treat it like it's in the same category. There's this this disconnect between the head and the heart. And heart in the Bible, it's, it's more than feelings. 
Heart is a reference to our longings, our loves, that, that feeling in our bones. And what we want to do and what just blows the whole thing wide open is when we experience it, when what we know in our head sinks down into the heart. And the heart will always equip, eclipse the head. The heart will always trump what you know in your head. The head is important because that's how it starts. You've got to know it with your head so that it goes down to your heart. But the heart, if there's a disconnect, the heart's always going to win. We know with our head that you don't jump out in front of a, a moving car. For cars, like I, I take my three-year-old and I, and I bring her in front of the street and I say, look, wait, whoa, watch that car. Don't go in the street, right? And we all know that. We know that instinctually. But if a child runs out in front of a car, what we know in our head immediately is trumped. It's eclipsed especially if it's our child. If our child runs in front of a car, we are on the ground. Now, do you, do you see this in your life? Do you feel this as I'm unpacking? Do you think that you might be treating God's love like human love? Because I'll be honest with you, I see it. I see it in our church. I hear it in the conversations we have. I hear it in the problems that come in my email or in over coffee. Some of you are waiting for God's evaluation of you. Some of you are trying to become a worthy person so that God will love you. Friends, beloved ones of God, God's evaluation of you is in. It was turned in at the cross. And his name is Jesus. That's how God evaluates you. He died so that you who were unworthy can now become worthy, can be worthy before God. This is all that we're talking about when we talk about being made right with God. We have peace with God. It's so that we can sit in the morning, when I wake up, I make my coffee and I sit with the Father and I can feel the worthy reality that God loves me and is making me new by this positional change. Do you struggle with your relationship with God? The invitation here is to see there's a new category, to believe it, to thrust, throw your heart upon it and to receive it as a reality that you want to see at play in your life. God's love is categorically different than human love. It's a totally different ballpark. It's like bringing a tiger into your home is different. We don't understand it. And the life of a Christian is learning how to understand it, learning how to receive it, and not keep it out there, but pull it into our hearts. This is the word of the cross spoken to us today. But there's also a way of the cross. This is how I want to end today. That you heard the gospel is to take God's love as it is. Christ dying for those who are unworthy so that they might be made right and be worthy. But if you look, look again at verse 8. But God 
shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This love is deeply personal. It's personal for God. There's an emphasis that Paul adds, his own love. It's not in our translation, but it's there in the original language. God shows his own love, the love that he only possesses for us. Christ died for us. I was reading a a book called The Cross of Christ. It's a classic book on the realities of the cross written by a a guy named John Stott. And he has a, a category on living under the cross. And there's a chapter in there that talks about self-understanding and self-giving. And he says this. He says, the cross revolutionizes our attitude towards ourself as well as our attitude towards God. So the community of the cross, in addition to being a community of celebration, is also a community of self-understanding. And this self-understanding comes through two ways. Self-denial and self-affirmation. And this is language that Stott uses. But self-denial, we're all probably familiar. If you're new to Jesus, this might be new, but many of us know this language because it's very explicit in the teachings of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And Jesus said this before he died on the cross. And after, we have this whole gripping understanding. And there's no way around this in the Christian life. This is the way of the cross. It is a dying to self. It's what Jesus invites us to as we receive God's love. One writer says, to deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. But because I know this group, we get that. We get the self-denial piece. And we need to say it because it's important and it's explicit in the teachings of Jesus. But Stott introduces this category of self-affirmation. What's going on there? And this isn't some modern self-help, self-love therapy. Why? Because our theology of the self is different than our theology, uh, than a secular theology of the self. Alongside the call to self-denial, we see the call to true self-discovery. We see this implicitly in the living of Jesus. It seems as Jesus ministers and calls people around himself, it seems as if these folks, they have this new understanding of themselves, this awakening of who they are, their identity. And we see it in the dying of Jesus. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for us. Because we're worth something to him. We've been made in the image of God. And part of the journey of the way of the cross is learning how to affirm what God has created in us. And this involves personality, This involves experiences because it's not just a created self that we're affirming. It's a redeemed self. And so God uses our broken stories to do something beautiful and good for the world. He's inviting us to understand that there is a person in you that he loves dearly and is calling and inviting out. 
And we are called to deny what is earthly, what is fleshly, what is idolatry, but we are also called to affirm our person, who we are at the core. Some writers talk about, Brendan Manning, I'm going to read a quote here, but he wrote a book called Abba's Child, and he talks about an imposter. That from an early age, we actually learn this self that we project to earn others' approval and to feel like we can make sense of the world. And part of affirming who you are in the core is taking the mask off, is stepping into the reality of who God has made you to be. Henry Nouwen says this. I guess it's not Brendan Manning. It's in Brendan Manning's book. He quotes Henry Nouwen. And this is how we'll end. Over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I'm a nobody. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. And so the invitation this morning is to receive the word of the cross, to recognize that we often treat God's love like it's human love. And the way we see that is this move or this feeling or this pressure and anxiety we feel to make ourselves worthy, to architect the best spiritual life that we can so God will love us, to serve him in certain ways so God will love us. And we're being invited out of that. We're being invited to recognize and see the great love of God on the cross and receive it and enjoy it and taste it and believe it. And this does call us to the way of the cross, to self-denying, but it also calls us to self-affirming. It calls us to understand that there is a person in each of you that God is trying to draw out. And as you step into that, the world is blessed. People have a sense, God, God is alive. Because this person is so confident in themselves. Not the imposter, in the true self. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We really do. We, we love you to pieces. And, and we want, we want to be changed. We want to know you. We want to experience your love. You're not detached from us. You're not distant and cold. You are a father who is arms wide open, warm and welcoming, and inviting us to come home. And so I pray, God, would you awaken us? Holy Spirit of God, would you just press on whoever you need to press? Would you awaken and challenge whoever you need to challenge? And would you stir up in us this radical understanding of the love of God for the unworthy, 
the love of God for sinners and teach us to walk in this way of the cross, one of self-denying and self-affirming. We love you and we trust you and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.